All right, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study tonight. Uh, again, please forgive my appearance. This has now happened the second time this summer where I was not able to get home and change from what I was doing throughout the day. So uh, we're just going to get right into our Bible study tonight. We're looking at the life of Christ together. Had the chance to get through a good portion so far, but we got a ways to go. I would say we are about probably halfway through. Uh, I think we've been doing this three or four months, so we probably have about three more months to go. I'll probably wrap things up around November or December is my projection. We'll see if I hit that. But uh, we're going to get right into the book of Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew, please. And talking about a passage of Scripture, I mean, those, that picture kind of gives you maybe the detail that you would need, the setting to help you kind of understand, maybe sympathize with the Pharisees. And I did say that, sympathize with the Pharisees. Now, I am not saying sympathize with the Pharisees because they deserve it. I'm saying sympathize with the Pharisees to understand where they are coming from. Christ understood where they are coming from. And Christ deals with their coming from, but he is dealing with their heart condition. He's going to call them out on it. But I have found, and I am am not in any way saying that Christ mishandled this situation. Obviously, Christ handled this perfectly. He's God. He knew exactly what they needed to hear, and he dealt with it in a way that would be most successful for them and for those listening. But I have found that, that there is no harm in we as humans who don't have the benefit of knowing the heart of people, don't have the benefit of knowing their literally, literal eternal history. Like, you know, we don't know their past as well as Christ did and does. And so there is an advantage to us knowing where people are coming from, understanding better why they think the way they do, why they feel the way they do, why they believe so deeply about the things that they've embraced. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But even if a deeper understanding of them, even if we can see life through their eyes, doesn't change anything we believe, it might change how you present your own beliefs. It may not change what you say, but it might change how you say it. Maybe a little more sympathy. Maybe a little more compassion. Or like Christ, if you do know more where they're coming from, maybe a little less sympathy. Maybe a little less compassion. And maybe after you know what they believe and know where they're coming from, you say, you know what, I could be sympathetic for you and to you, but that's not helpful. I'm just going to tell you straight. I'm going to tell you like it is because you're playing with fire. So understanding where people come from, that's really helpful. Let's do that tonight. The Pharisees. Uh, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. Then came Jesus, came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem. All right, so the scribes, these are people who would know very in-depth the word of God, the law. These are people who would be a lot of things, historians, uh, you might even say uh, folks who would be called upon for aspects of the law. What is the law saying when it says this? How would it be applied in this area? You might say these are like the, the, the people who would, if there was an argument about something and there was a discussion about context or accuracy, the scribes are the people you'd go to. The Pharisees, these are the guys who are, are the teachers to the common man. They're out in the community. They're giving instruction. They're giving direction. The scribes and Pharisees may be friends, may not, depending on the scribe, depending on the Pharisees. The, posi- the job descriptions themselves would not cause these two men to be at odds. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees would be at odds, mainly due to the fact that the Pharisees were teachers to the common man, and the Sadducees, also teachers, made it very clear that their heart was in power, prestige, and politics. And so the Pharisees would have despised the Sadducees for selling out to Roman politics, selling out to the elite of Israel, selling out for money and for power, for nicer food, for invitations to dinner parties. And the Pharisees would, would be upset for that. Whereas the scribes, you know, there's not really anything in particular that would call the, cause the Pharisees to say, I hate you, or we're enemies. So they're coming together to Jesus, and uh, in verse 2, why do thy disciples transgress? Now, I appreciate this. What do they not say? Exactly. They do not say, why are they transgressing the law? I would hope that is the case, because who is with the Pharisees, the scribes. Who would know the law? The scribes. Who, would, who, who could, if, if anyone had to be very sure what the Bible said, Old Testament, Pentateuch, books of the law, all that, it would be the scribes. So they cannot claim that washing your hands is part of the law in, on, on a deep sense, on, a, on, the, on the level that they're claiming here, because they know it's, it's not like do this or you're breaking the law on the level of morality or things like that. But they say tradition of the elders, for they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So why are these folks upset? Well, I think they're upset for a few reasons. They're upset because Jesus Christ is not taking tradition seriously. That's a pretty big deal for people who take tradition seriously. If much of your belief system is based in because my pastor did and because his pastor before him and and so on and so on or because this great preacher from the 1800s did or because my commentary from the 1700s said this, if your belief system is deeply influenced and affected by what people have been doing, then you are going to be offended when people are not doing what has been done. Can I give you some examples? Two words, bus ministry. Give you another one. Three words, door to door. I'll give you another one. Dress standards. I could go on and on and on. What I have found is that People are now shifting, and have been for some time, shifting from, well, this is how it's always been done, to now, well, this is the way it should be done, and now they're claiming justification because of Scripture. At least the scribes and Pharisees were honest and saying it's just a tradition. They're not trying to use Scripture to justify their offense of unwashed hands. I appreciate that about these guys. Now, doesn't mean that they're sincere lovers of truth because Christ is seriously going to call these guys out. He's basically going to say, all right, so you love tradition so much, but then you ignore the very laws you as scribes should know better than anyone else. And he calls them hypocrites. But today I find a lot of spiritual leaders, a lot of teachers, they don't even call it traditions anymore. They just, they just outrightly claim it is the Bible. It is scriptural. It is moral. If you don't do this, you are going against God's word. I've heard it said that if you don't go 
door to door, then you are not following the mandates of Scripture in reference to outreach. Basically what is, I'll I'll paraphrase it for you, if you're not doing door to door, you're not doing outreach right. You may be doing outreach. You may be reaching the community. If in some way door to door is not part of that outreach, you're doing it wrong. And they will not say doing it wrong according to tradition. They will say you are going against the Bible. The only biblical way is door to door. Anything above that is above that. Don't ever replace door to door with anything. You can only add to door to door. And yet where in scripture is door to door outreach? Well, Christ sent them out by twos. So not only door to door, but make sure you have a partner with you because going door to door by one is against the Bible. Except they didn't go door to door, did they? They went city to city. And it seems to me when they went to the city, it was more of like a street preaching style than actually knocking on doors saying, hey, Christ is in the town over. Do you want to come see him? Or let me tell you about the miracles I've witnessed. No, it was preaching to a city probably at the synagogue or the town square, somewhere where there is crowds of people. I do not believe Christ sent them into multiple cities to knock on doors. Never is it mentioned that they do. These people who take tradition and try to justify it with Scripture assume there is some door knocking, but that's not stated. Bus ministry. You want to reach children, you better have a bus ministry. Almost, if you don't have a bus ministry, your church isn't doing something right. And there is some extreme judgment there. So, I would say that some are just purely deceived. They've been told by someone who was told, by someone who was told, and they just believe what they're told. I made a statement earlier this week during our teacher training, uh, the, the word presupposition. My definition of presupposition, uh, the, the definition is a belief based off of what you were told when you were younger. That's a presupposition. I would take it a step further and say a presupposition truly is a belief that you have embraced without challenging it. You were taught something when you were younger. You never challenged it. You just accepted it. It has become a presupposition. And so now your actions and your conversations and your belief system is based off of things you were told that were never tried or challenged. And that's the case for a lot of Christians. Their belief system is not from an in-depth study of this book. Their belief system is based off of what they were told, and they never checked it to ensure it was accurate. Never checked it to ensure it came from this book. In fact, there are preachers who would tell you, don't question me. I told you that's enough. They are literally shaping you and placing you in a position where your belief system is presuppositions and blaming you and shaming you if you dare step outside the presupposition to challenge or question. By the way, challenging and questioning doesn't mean you won't agree. Challenging and questioning just means when you agree, you now agree because you agree, not because you were told so. And that's how it should be for the believer. Because we're all priests and kings. We are not servants to men. We are servants of God on behalf of God towards men. But we're not, we're not man's servants to do their every bidding, to believe their every statement. At least the scribes and Pharisees have a leg up even on today's 
independent Baptist preachers, and I am one of them. I'm saying this as one of them. I, I have nothing against Baptists. I have nothing against independent Baptists. Our church is Baptist, and we are independent. But I am greatly concerned for the trend that I've seen in decades. This is not a new thing for independent Baptist preachers and others to give presuppositions based in tradition and then shame you when you dare challenge it. No, I encourage you, challenge what you hear, but you better make sure you're challenging it with this, the Word of God. Do not challenge it with the world's belief system or truth because the world doesn't have a clue what truth is. The world doesn't know what it believes. I mean, I'm not here to make fun of people or their deceptions, and so I'm not going to, but, but guys, read the news and, and just and f- read a little bit about what the world believes is okay or moral for young children to do or not do. What the world believes is acceptable when it comes to uh, teenagers and the choices that teenagers can make. Just read a few articles, read a, a few blogs, and you'll figure out pretty quick. You can't, you can't challenge what is told you by men and women of God from the world's point of view, okay? Don't do it. Challenge what is told to you by men and women of God, preachers, youth pastors, Christian school teachers, I don't care. If they claim to be telling you something of God from God, challenge it with the word of God every time. If you're ever in doubt, if something ever strikes you as odd, if something ever seems off or contradictory to what you might have believed before, do not accept it right away. Do not reject it right away. Take it, read the word of God, and then agree or disagree because of what the Bible says. And then your belief system will neither be based in traditions or presuppositions. It'll be based in the word of God, which is exactly what it should be. Some of the things you are told will be right, and you will agree because they're right, not because you were told. And some of the things you are told will be wrong, and you will disagree, not because you have an aversion to this particular person, but they're wrong because the Word of God says they're wrong. So these Pharisees say, hey, we got traditions. Why aren't your your disciples following these traditions? By the way, is this tradition a bad tradition? Washing your hands before you eat, because that's what's happening. Is this a sinful tradition? Is this tradition in any way hurtful to the, to the health, physical, spiritual, or emotional of the person? No, in fact, it's helpful to the physical health. And by the way, the physical does affect the emotional. You get sick, your emotions are affected. It's, it's even helpful to the emotional health. Can't really see much benefit to the spiritual health of these guys for washing their hands before they eat, but definitely emotional and physical. Yeah, washing your hands. It's, this is a good tradition. So why does Christ not enforce it on his disciples? That's a real good question, isn't it? Jesus knows about the tradition. You think the disciples knew about it? You better believe they did. So why didn't Christ enforce a good thing, washing their hands? Consider this, the Old Testament. Uh, how many of the laws in the Old Testament were, had nothing to do with morality, um, had nothing to do with how you treated people, interpersonal relationships? How many of the laws in the Old Testament were based on health? God basically said in the Old Testament, if I'm going to be your God, if I'm going to be in control and in charge of the nation of Israel, I want you to be a healthy people. And so don't eat this. Don't do this. Before you do this, do that. 
Uh, if, if you have a disease, you know, get it checked out before you can be in, among the people again. You know, quarantine, right? Don't quarantine the healthy, quarantine the sick. How many laws were due to health? I don't know, but lots. I actually did a series years ago on all the laws and broke them down by health and moral and, and just kind of like legal laws that you need to have in a governmental system to have things operate correctly. And a lot of them fell in the health category. So obviously God cares about our health, and obviously God is good with us being healthy, and this is a healthy tradition. So I ask again, why didn't Jesus enforce this healthy tradition? Could it be, and we don't know because Christ doesn't tell us, could it be there's circumstances we're not aware of? Could it be that if there was a water basin and soap available, Christ would lead by example, washing his hands, and I'm sure as most people do, oh, the leader's doing it, I guess I better do it too, right? Uh, could it be that, that Christ might mention, hey, guys, let's wash our hands and let's pray and let's eat? Could it be? Yeah, I would imagine so, that, that if Christ, when he goes to Mary Magdalene's house or when he, when he, Mary and Martha, whatever, when he's visiting them and they're feeding him, I am sure hands are being washed, feet are being washed. In fact, on one occasion, when Jesus was eating food, he mentioned that he was, in a, in a way, uh, not that he was offended, but that offense was, was given to him by the, the one who invited him, Simon the Pharisee, because his feet were not washed before the meal. So Christ points that out. So I imagine if, it, if the opportunity arose, Christ was washing hands and feet. Could it be they're in the field and there's not a wash basin anywhere nearby? And to follow this tradition... Jesus would have had to walk his disciples a mile, two miles, which in that days was no joke, before they ate. Could it be that Jesus had more important things to do, more important places to be, than go back to where he came from to wash hands, to come back to the field to eat the wheat? Could it be that there are extenuating circumstances that we're not aware of and the Pharisees and scribes don't want to recognize? I think very likely. Could it be that, yes, this is a good tradition, but this tradition doesn't mean you have to starve? I wash my hands before I eat, but you know what? There are times where I've been given food and there is no place to wash my hands nearby. I do not place the food in a bag under the chair of my car to eat later. I eat the food with unwashed hands, and I accept the consequences of that choice. Usually it works out okay for me. You can never really know how and when you got sick, right? But it's not like I get sick every time I eat food with unwashed hands, but normally I do because we got opportunities to wash our hands everywhere here as we take advantage of that. This tradition was a good one, but it was not more important than the physical well-being, the hunger status of his disciples. But see, these scribes, they got a problem. Because it is a tradition and because it's something we've always done, and because it is a presupposition of our belief system, and because we preach so hard on it, because we make it such a big deal, now even a tradition is more important than the emotional, physical, or spiritual well-being of the individual. We don't care if you're hungry. Wash your hands i got to walk an hour that way to wash my hands. It doesn't matter. Don't eat that till you wash your hands. Hour there, hour back. That doesn't make sense. We don't care. Is it a good thing to dress up 
for church. Yes, it is, and yet here I am, right? It's, it's a good thing to dress up for church. It's a good thing. Sunday morning. I've heard different statements regarding Sunday morning dress. I've heard it said, you should dress your best. Okay. I own a pretty nice suit. In fact, uh, not anymore, but I did for some time. I had the suit I got married in. You know, unlike the brides where you wear your, your outfit one time and box that thing up, I was wearing my, you know, suit for years, you know, to church, right? I didn't wear the bow tie or whatever else, but I had the suit coat I was wearing. I was a groomsman at my friend's wedding, and I now had a second suit I was wearing for years after that. I was a groomsman at my brother's wedding. I was wearing that suit for years. I was putting that thing to use. But I'll tell you what, that was my best. I had it. And uh, I could have purchased even better than I could have purchased a tuxedo. Would it look a little odd wearing a tuxedo preaching? Depends on maybe the church or the circumstance. I think for most people, yeah, that would be a little odd. I think that women, their best would be some type of, of, of ball gown. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot better outfits out there than even just a dress. So to say God deserves your best, dress the best, then it, it would look like we're going to a banquet. It would look like we're going to, to dance in a ballroom. It would look like we're going to a wedding. And yet I don't see most church services looking like that. So they say dress your best, but they don't actually mean that. It's just a statement to shame you, and is that really your best? So then some would say, well, dress as you would to worship the Lord. You are entering into the presence of the Lord, and you should dress accordingly. You should dress with the knowledge that you are coming before the feet and the throne of God. And how do you think you should look when you come before the throne of God? My answer is, uh, (laughs) I am not going to say that over live stream, Sarah. Spiritually, yes, Sarah. (laughs) I'm going to assume that's what you mean. My answer is humble. That's how you come before the throne of God, humble. As far as dress goes before the throne of God, I see Christ, and I don't believe he was wearing the fringe outfits, the flowing gowns, the colorful gowns. And how do I know that? Because he actually calls out the Pharisees and says, you guys are wearing that to impress, but your inside is rotten. You look shiny on the outside, but oh, that inside is like dead men's bones. He actually calls them out for that. It seems to me to be hard to call them out for that if he himself was wearing the same thing. Also, when you see him dying on the cross and it talks about his coat being torn, it doesn't talk about all the pieces and everything that are, they're taking along with it. I, I just I don't think that's how Christ dressed. So this idea that we should dress a certain way for a service is based in what? Tradition again. Can you show me in Scripture where the Bible points out how we should dress when we come before the throne room of God spiritually? The Bible does give instruction on how the priests in the Old Testament should dress, and that included uh, uh, not only gown, but but the ephod and other things that they would wear with it, um, not so much because God wanted them to look shiny, but because their clothing represented certain truths. It represented um, things that God had told to the Jews. So unless your clothes have some type of representation, which they don't, it's really just a way to make your body look better. 
I'm not opposed to looking nice. I'm not opposed to dressing nice. I have a problem. And by the way, so again, like the washing your hands, is it a good thing to dress nice? Of course it is. Is it a bad thing for people to dress up a little bit or a lot of it on Sunday? Of course, it's not a bad thing. It becomes a problem when that tradition is more important than what? The people who are there worshiping. That's when we have the problem. When other members who say, well, it's a good thing to dress up, no one's disagreeing with you on that. That I, No sane person I know is disagreeing with you on the statement that it's a good thing to dress up to go to church. I don't know anyone that disagrees with that statement. If they're out there, I've never talked to them. The problem that I'm aware of, the people that I know that have a problem with that statement, is when those who say it's a good thing judge others outwardly harshly when they don't do that good thing. And now the tradition of how you look is more important than the heart condition of the person. And that person walks out, not encouraged, but discouraged. Not discouraged because God has revealed to them a sin that they need to repent of. No, they're discouraged because God's people have made tradition more important than their soul, than their heart. How dare us? How, how dare us treat a tradition in that such a way? The scribes and Pharisees were doing that. And so Christ calls him out on that. And he says, why do you also transgress the commandment? Okay. They say, hey, you transgress tradition. Christ said, I can one-up you. You transgress the commandment. <laughs> Which one's more important? The commandment, right? He says, I'm not going to play your guys' game. We're not going to debate traditions here. Let's talk about truth. Let's talk about the word of God. And then he goes on to some of the ones that they have a problem with. He says, uh, it is commanded to honor your father and your mother. But you allow your fellow Jews, if they give a certain offering to the temple, to be free from their obligation to their aging parents. Honoring your mother and father, by the way, if you ever wondered what that meant, this, this kind of opens that up a little bit for us. So verse uh, number four, honor thy father and mother. He that curseth father, let him die the death. Verse five, but ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect. What does that mean? All right. The parents are saying, we're getting old. We need help. You need to support us. And the child says, you know what? The money I was going to give to support you, I gave it to the temple, so I'm off the hook. I tithe to the church this week, so can't help you. not going to help you. And the Pharisees said, oh, it's okay. If you can't help your parents, or can't, won't, whatever, if you're giving to the temple above and beyond, you can tell your parents, no, I gave it as a gift to God, so I don't have to help you. And Christ says, you, I mean, he's calling them out. What is going on here? These Pharisees, these scribes are trying to get rich off of the common man, even if that means the elderly of their community starve. In verse number 7, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. That word vain means empty. A church who has taken any tradition and elevated it to the level of biblical truth is only experiencing empty worship. 
a pastor who every Sunday has to bring up their pet peeve tradition is now affecting the sincerity of that worship. I don't think he knows he's doing that. I don't think the people know that he's doing that. They're just going with it because it's always been done. And they accept it because that's what he always says. But it is these very traditions that is breaking down the sincerity of worship that God's people should, would, and could be experiencing. If we would just let traditions be traditions, good traditions, no problem. No one follows them, no problem. Bad traditions, get rid of them. They're bad traditions. But don't ever take a tradition and try to justify its importance by taking Scripture out of context. Because now our worship is affected. Empty worship. What do you think is a reason why so many churches are not experiencing revival? I was listening to a song today. I like listening to Christian music. I listen to it throughout the day. It's a newer song. I don't even know who sings it. I often don't. I just listen to songs and say, oh, that's a nice song. I don't know who the artists are. I don't know who's singing it. I don't really care. I like the words. I like the music. There was a particular song, and it talked about revival, and they were talking about um, in the song he was singing, like, we want to go to church, and we're all going to have revival when we get to church. It's an assumption, like, you know, I'm going to church, therefore I will have revival because I'm going there. I think a lot of Christians think that. They have this belief that if I'm there Sunday, I'll experience to some degree a revival, like it's a given, guaranteed offer, promise from God. That has not been my experience. <laughs> Just because people are going to a church, even Meriden Hills, doesn't mean there's going to be revival in this church or in their heart or in their family. The song implied that. It was a catchy song. It didn't offend me. It just made me think. And it made me consider, oh, a lot of Christians really do feel that way. They really do believe that way. A lot of Christians begging God for revival because there are a lot recognizing there isn't revival going on and there could be, should be. What's holding us back? There's a lot of things holding us back. This is obviously one of them. When Christ so clearly states your worship is empty because traditions are more important than the law, than the promises, the truth of God's word, you don't have a deep relationship with me. It's shallow. It's empty. It's non-existent. For these guys right here, revival could be attained purely by recognizing tradition is not as important as the word, follow the word, and deal with tradition on a lower level. They would have some form of revival. How many churches would have revival if they, if they just got up and said, you know what, it is good to dress nice, but it's not important? How many churches would have revival if they said, you know, it is good to go outreach, but door-to-door is not the only way to do it? And people would then change their mindsets about what is important. And there would be true, sincere revival in their hearts. But no, pastors keep want to, want to keep preaching the same things and keeping their people back from the real revival that God has for them. Let's move on now. We're in uh, Matthew. Let's stay in Matthew. So turn to, we're in verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And he answered her not a word. Sometimes people accuse Christians of being cruel, unkind, unloving. And they say that's not what Jesus would do. 
uh, you must not know the Jesus I know. I'm not saying Jesus is unkind. I'm saying your definition of what kind is, your definition of what is what, what someone should always do is not based on what Christ actually did, only based on what you think people should do and saying Christ would do that. Because here we have a woman saying, Christ, please help me. My daughter has a demon, and Christ doesn't even respond to her. He doesn't acknowledge her. He doesn't answer her. If I did that to someone, I guarantee you would they say, would they say well, that's not very Christ-like. I can say, aha, it is Christ-like. Matthew chapter 17, verse 21 and on. Ha, I am being exactly like Christ. Gotcha. No, here's what's going on. Christ knows better than I do, as I've already stated earlier tonight, the history of people. He knows better the, the game plan of what other people are thinking and what they're experiencing, what's going on around him. So Christ can make choices that may seem that they are offensive to us, but Christ is seeing the bigger picture. You know what's really hard as a leader? I have learned this not from someone telling me. I've learned this from my own experience. Being a leader on any level is really hard because you know things people don't know. Can't know, don't want to know, shouldn't be able to know. You know things And so your decisions are based on what you know, not what they know. That's really hard as a leader. Why do you think? Because they can only know what they know. And they often react, not act, react, based on what they know. And if they don't know what you know, then their reaction isn't fully informed. And as a leader, sometimes the temptation is to say, I want them to know what I know so they don't react in that way. So they don't respond uh, angrily to me. So they don't respond with suspicion or bitterness or sadness. I don't want them to respond this way if they only knew what I knew. That temptation is very strong at any level for a leader. So strong a lot of leaders get into it. They give into it, excuse me. So what do they do? They then impart upon you the knowledge they have, which almost always includes information you weren't supposed to know. Otherwise, you would have known it. I'm not saying always, almost always, as it relates to other people. So now this leader, to justify the decision they are making, to hold back your ignorant reaction, are gossiping to you. They're telling you things you should not know, telling you things you do not need to know, so that you don't get mad at them. But now what have they done? They've burdened your heart with information that you have to walk away with that will affect how you see other people, including the idea of this, if you're smart, (laughs) wait a second, If he just told me that about them, what does he tell them about me when I'm not around, right? You should be thinking that because that is true. Because a leader who's not willing to make the hard decisions without giving information that's not necessary is the leader who's going to always give out information that they should not, including information about you. You can't trust leaders like that. Unfortunately, in my experience, these kinds of leaders that make the hard choices with the knowledge that they've got, 
and not imparting it upon you unnecessarily are rare. In my experience, most leaders just can't handle the pressure, interpersonal pressure from people they love and are loved by. And they so are forever, they are forever telling people things that people should not know. Does it fix one problem? Yes, it does, because now you say, oh, now I understand why you made that. But you've just replaced one problem with another. Parents, your kids don't need to know everything that you know. They shouldn't know everything that you know. And you could explain everything to them so they better understand the choice you're making, but now you've just replaced one problem with another. Now they have information that's not healthy for them to hear, that will burden them about others. I'm not saying there aren't times where you can explain your decision, but the chances are if you've been a leader for any amount of time, there is so much information you know that probably not everyone should know what you know. I will tell you this. I told my wife a long time ago. It was over 10 years ago. This was not recent. It was before we even came here to Meriden Hills, and I've been here going on my 11th year now. I told my wife a long time ago, honey, if you trust me, then I shouldn't have to tell you everything I know. If I've gained your trust in our marriage, in our relationship, then you've got to trust me that I will only tell you things related to ministry. Now, when it comes to our marriage, she knows everything. When it comes to me, she knows everything. I'm referring to people in our church and school. I said, honey, if you trust my character, if you trust me as a leader, then I'm not going to tell you everything I know about everyone else for a few reasons. Number one, it's not fair to everyone else that you would know what they've given me. Number two, it's not fair to you. You don't have the responsibility, the authority, the, the, the ability to do anything with the information I am going to give you or I would have given you. You can't do anything with it other than dwell on it and, and, and impart some kind of bitterness or hatred or concern or anxiety in your life. That's all it can do, fester, because you're not the pastor. You don't have the authority to do anything with that information. So it hurts you. Number three, indirectly, it hurts me. Because if I give you information that burdens you and hurts you, I'm married to you. We're one. So whatever I do that hurts you indirectly hurts me. I'm shooting myself on the own foot. And so my wife, years ago, you could ask her, she accepted that. It's not easy. There have been times where something came out. I didn't say it, but it came out. And Amy said, did you know? And I said, yeah, of course I knew. <laughs> I knew before the people who said it knew. I knew, but it wasn't my place to tell you. And there were times where my wife found it hard to be the one to find out after others. But she's never accused me of doing wrong because we've agreed to that a long time ago. And I'll tell you, my desire for my wife is I want her to love you easily. I want her to love the students easily, the teachers easily, my staff, the members of this church. I want her to love them easily. So why would I give her information that makes loving you harder? Why would I do that? Just for the sake of knowledge. There's no benefit. A lot of people at this church say, Amy is so sweet. She's so loving. She's easy to get along with. Yet, yeah, you know, naturally she is. Like her personality is that way. I've also helped her with that by a pastor, as a pastor. I don't want my wife to be that bitter old pastor's wife. And I've helped her with that 
by letting her personality be strong in that area and not being burdened with knowledge she doesn't need to know. As a leader, I have that knowledge. You know why it doesn't burden me? Because I can do something about it. I have the ability, the authority to act on it. So I can either act on it, and if I choose not to, then that's my choice not to, and I give it to God, and I walk away. So it doesn't burden me. But a lot of leaders, they can't handle the burden of that knowledge. They've got to pass it on to someone else, and it's usually the one closest to them, wife, children. So they pass that burden on to someone else, which is not their burden to bear, and they can't do anything with that knowledge other than become bitter. And then that pastor, that leader, walks away with a smile on their face because they just unloaded it on someone else. I've known a lot of pastors. I've had this conversation with a lot of pastors, young men usually, and I tell them what I just told you, my philosophy. And a young man, this was years ago, he does not work at our church. Years ago, this young man said, well, that's not our marriage. My wife and I, we tell each other everything. I said, everything? Everything. There are no secrets. I said, so if someone gives you information that they don't want passed on, your wife's going to know? And they say, yes. I tell people, everything you tell me, my wife is going to know. I said, well, that's your choice, but I can tell you right now that's going to hurt your relationship with those people, your wife, and your wife's relationship with those people. And he said, well, our marriage is more important. I'll tell you what happened. This young man acted on exactly what I just told you. And him and his wife, uh, his wife knew everything he knew. But she couldn't do anything with it except get mad, angry. And eventually her anger caused him to have to leave the church he was at and find a new ministry. Because this young man was a pastor. And he couldn't stay in a church any longer where his wife had anger issues (laughs) with people in the church. And where did those anger issues come from? Information he gave her that she couldn't do anything with but get angry about. I warned the guy. I said, this is probably how it's going to end. And that's how it ended. As a leader, accept the responsibility that you know things people do not know. And they're going to react with their limited knowledge and say, you are stupid. You are ignorant. You are cruel. You are unkind. How dare you make that decision? You have to accept that or tell them things they should not know. I've chosen to accept it. In the end, people either trust me and they stay, or they don't trust me and they leave. But I'm not going to change my philosophy to keep people because I'm not willing to hurt them to keep them because that's what I would do by telling them things they should not know. So if they have to leave, they have to leave. At this point, you know, it's really nice being in one ministry so long, going in my 11th year. At this point, people have recognized, oh, Pastor Russ, you know, all right. He's, he's sticking around. He's not just here and gone. He's proven that he does love us. So there has been given more trust to me. I can tell you, though, my philosophy, it was really hard my first years as a pastor here because a lot of people couldn't trust me. And when they didn't have the information that I had and I made decisions they didn't agree with, they did just leave. A lot of that was going on. A lot. In fact, I'm going on my seventh year as pastor now, lead pastor, and there are currently in our church, it's pretty full here Sunday mornings, There's probably five people in our church now that were here when I became pastor seven years ago. Five. Most of them left. But I've stuck it out, stuck with my philosophy, and the ones that have stayed have accepted. Russ knows something we don't know. We trust him, and that's enough. But I had to earn that trust. And that's another problem. 
most leaders aren't willing to stick around long enough to earn the trust necessary to have that kind of philosophy. So they keep leaving. They either stick with that philosophy and keep leaving because they can't stay because it hurts them too much, or they change their philosophy. So Christ obviously knows something we don't know, right? Can we trust the character of Christ here? Can we recognize that Christ is not an unkind, evil person? He's God, the lover of humanity. You've got to trust Christ's heart here. And although it seems very odd that this woman would say, please, my daughter is demon-possessed. Help me. And Christ doesn't respond. What is your first reaction? Wow, that's not very Christ-like. Wait a second. We're talking about Christ. How can Christ not be Christ-like? That's an oxymoron. Well, that's not very loving. God is love, so you can't say that. Well, that doesn't seem right. God is the creator of right and wrong. He chooses what's right. You can't say that. You're only left with, hmm, Christ must know something I don't. Now we are right. Christ knows something we don't. You know what's interesting? We aren't ever really told what Christ does know about this woman (laughs) or the people surrounding that would cause him to have this response. We can only make assumptions, which is not a rare thing in Scripture. I love how God's Word gives us so much detail about God and his character, how he operates, what he thinks, why he did, what he did, when he did, how he did. Scripture is full of information to build our trust in God. I love that. But if you read the Bible long enough, you're going to find lots of passages where there are big gaps, there are big holes, and those holes can be disturbing. And you can say, that bothers me when I read that. All right, it's okay to be bothered. You're human. You're mortal. You don't know eternal past and eternal future. You don't know. You're not omniscient. You don't know everything going on right now. It's okay to be bothered because you lack the eternal knowledge of God. What's not okay is to assume that the character of God is flawed. Why is that not okay? Because Scripture is full of so much information about the pure character of God, that when there are gaps, why would you fill it in with sin? God is doing something wrong. God has fallen short of what I thought he was. Why would you fill in the unknown with offense? Why would you fill in the holes with wrongs? Why would you not when there's a gap, when there's a hole, when there's emptiness, and there's no re- when there's no answer to what bothers you, why would you not immediately fill it in with, hey, God must know something I don't? There must be more to the story I don't know. I have learned to read Scripture in that manner, not because of presuppositions, not because some pastor told me so. No, I do that because I've read all of Scripture over, page to page, and throughout Many times, and there is so much about God that when there is something lacking, I take what is there, fill in the gaps, and everything's good. I can trust God. And God is not required to tell me everything he knows because he's God and I'm not. He's the head leader, I'm not. And as a leader, I recognize I don't need to know everything the leader knows. I need to trust his character. This woman, 
She's pretty tenacious. She doesn't give up. We're told that uh, his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she crieth after us. <laughs> she says, Jesus, my daughter has a demon. Please help me. Jesus doesn't look at her. I, I, in my head, I picture he keeps walking. So she turns to the disciples, please, can you have the master talk to me? Please. She holds on to them. She pulls their clothing. She begs. So the disciples are distraught. This woman is causing them to be upset. They go to Christ and say, please, just speak to her. But when you do, tell her to leave us alone. She bothers us. So he says, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Hey, my responsibility is to the Jews right now. Not, not ever, not always. He, he addresses that later. He even tells the apostles. He says, go into all the world, right? Uh, Jerusalem, he goes into Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So he instructs the church to go to the world, not just to Israel. So it's not that he has anything against Gentiles. He's just stating, my calling right now. My focus right now is the nation of Israel. Why? Because hundreds and even thousands of years ago, I made a commitment to them. I made a covenant to them. I made a promise to them specifically. And I don't break my promises. I don't break my covenants. I am here in fulfillment of a covenant I made to them. Therefore, I'm here for them right now. You know, don't worry. Your time's coming up later. Right now, it's the Jews. All right, you thought that he didn't talk to her was a little offensive? She says, she worships him, saying, help me. He says, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, you read that? Does that bother you? What did she just do in verse 25? Worshipped him. I think our heart tells us that when we worship God, he looks upon us and just says, what do you want? I'll give it all to you. Like, oh, that felt so good that you worshiped me. You, you know, your request is granted. <laughs> Not here. This woman worships God, worships Christ, after he already turned his back on her. And then when he did respond to her, because she wouldn't leave his disciples alone, his response was, I'm not here for you. She worships him anyways. Now that is impressive worship. To worship God when he says no. To worship God when he says, not now, not you. To still worship God, I am pretty amazed by this woman. What is driving this woman to this place of deep, sincere, consistent worship? What is driving her? Her love for God? I guess. I, I would imagine so. Her love for her daughter. The more God tells you no, I encourage you, the deeper your worship should be. The more God says not now, wait, hold off, don't lessen your worship, increase your worship. And then, after worship, he says, hey, it's not meat, it's not okay that I take what is offered to the children and give it to the dog on the ground. Who is he referring to as the dog? The woman. 
I've heard pastors say, well, you know, there's different kind of dogs. There's wild dogs, and there's house dogs, and there's lap dogs, and there's family dogs. And, you know, this word is referring more to the lap family, you know, cute little dog. So it's okay. It's not offensive. Look, I mean, a dog is a dog. An animal is an animal, right? A beast is a beast. Cute, fluffy uh, Maltese or big wolf dog. They're both animals. I would imagine the offense might be deeper if he said a rabid wolf, but it's still, he's still talking about an animal. All right, so we got a problem here, right? Nope, only if when there's a problem, you fill it in with ignorance, filled in with knowledge. God is loving. God's all-knowing. He knows a lot more about what's going on here than we do, this woman than we do, and the people who are listening than we do. And he's making some really tough choices here on how he handles this woman. And we could assume that God is wrong. You'd be assuming (laughs) ignorantly and out of context because you weren't there. This woman doesn't give up. She actually says, you know, you're right. She agrees with them, right? She said, Lord, you're right. Yeah, I don't give what I, what I prepared for my children. I don't throw it on the ground for the dog. You're right about that. She says, but if something falls off the table, if there's leftovers, can the dog have that? <laughs> wow. I want to meet this woman when I get to heaven. Wow. She is able to think critically in a highly emotional state. Now, I am not degrading women here. That's hard for anyone to do. Man, woman, adult, child, to separate your emotions and to think and respond critically, not critically as in with criticism, think critically as in separate emotions and think about all the facts and respond with facts. This woman must have been the easiest person to have a conversation with when confrontation arose. She'd be like, you know what, let's just talk about the facts here. Let's not exaggerate. Let's talk about the truth. Let's get through this. We can have a response here. And you offend her. And she says, you know what, I can understand how you'd be offended. And you yell at her. I can understand why you're yelling. And you scream at her. I get where you're coming from. You're like, stop getting where I come from and just let me yell, right? Like this woman probably drove people crazy by her calmness. Christ is not purposely trying to offend her. Again, Christ knows things we don't. But most people would have been in such an emotional state after Christ turned his back, let alone the three things that he has said, right? They would have been so emotionally distraught that the words coming out of their mouth would not have made sense, let alone been effective in moving the heart of the person to action, or at least a positive action, right? Might move them to action, all right, but not one you'd like. This woman loves God and loves her daughter so much, she's not going to let her emotions destroy this opportunity. How many times have you let your emotions destroy the very opportunity you've been looking for, waiting for? It comes and you blow it because you let your emotions get in the way. You've been waiting for an opportunity to talk to your spouse about that thing that's been bothering you for weeks, for months, for years. You've been thinking about it, pondering it. Finally, your spouse says something. The door is open. They didn't know. They just said something which easily segues into the very conversation you've been wanting to have. The opportunity is here. Let me get this off of my heart so we can move forward. And you blow it because you don't say it. You yell it. You scream it. Your emotions destroy 
the success you've been seeking. I am not saying humans need to be without emotion, but I would say this woman's got it right. She recognizes, Christ, you make a good point. You are exactly right. I don't make, prepare meals for my dog. Now, I know some people who do. Obviously, Christ wasn't one of them, and this woman wasn't one of them, okay? She says, I don't prepare meals for my dog. I prepare them for children, but when the children are done, if there's leftovers, the dog can have it. And if it happens to fall on the ground, I'm not going to pick it up and give it to my children. It belongs to the dog. <laughs> can you imagine Christ? He's like... I, in my head, I picture Christ just, like, smiling. <laughs> like, I, you know, he must have been, you know, he's, he's a little serious here, right? I, he's not joking. He's not being sarcastic. He's saying these things seriously. This woman just won't give up. Christ probably, he doesn't say, I assume. He probably smiles. And what's his answer in verse 28? Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. All right. You can have the crumbs. <laughs> you can have the leftovers. You're right, because the cup does overflow. And I've got a lot to give around. So can't argue, won't argue that. Her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I had more to teach on tonight, but we'll end here for sake of time. I've heard it said, you pray until God says no. And as presuppositions go, I repeated what I heard. I said that myself for many years because that was told me. It was a presupposition. That's how they work. A lot of young preachers, you'll find, don't have really new content. I'm not saying all, a lot. They, I'm not saying all. I know, Ethan. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Ethan's, wait a sec. Separate your emotions, Ethan. Think critically. It's okay. All right. I didn't say all. A lot. A lot of young preachers aren't actually giving profoundly deep, you know, new messages. They're just repeating things that they liked, that, that, that they heard and liked, and they're repeating it. By the way, I did the same thing. All right, that's just unfortunately how it often is for young men. And so it was told me, you pray until God says no, then you accept it. So I repeated that. And then I started reading the Bible. Then I started reading the Gospels, and I thought, wait a second. <laughs> that, doesn't, that statement doesn't match the Word of God. <laughs> and I challenged this presupposition, and that was one I decided to dispose of. And now I say, you keep praying. God says no, you just keep praying. If it's important to you, as long as the prayer is not against the morality of God's Word, as long as the prayer is not against the truth of God's word. Some could say, well, what if it's against the will of God? You don't know that. Well, he said no, so you know it's against the will of God. Except there are multiple cases in Scripture where God said no. The request was made again and again, and then God said yes. I'll give you one example. Moses on Mount Sinai. God says, I am done with the Israelites. They continue to rebel and churn towards wickedness from me. He said, Moses, I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. And Moses says, God, I'm begging. Don't take that route. God, what would people say? Obviously, God is above what people say. But Moses kept praying. And God said, fine. Fine, Moses. I'm killing some of them, though. 
I'm going to judge some of them. They're not all going to survive. They won't all survive tonight, but fine. I won't start over with you. That's just one example of many throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Christ actually told us how to pray, and he did so by using a parable. He said there's a woman who was a widow, and uh, she was being wronged by some creditors. So she went to the local judge, the one who makes the decisions. But the judge didn't care. She's a, she's a small person, has no money, has no prestige. Why does the judge care about this widow? So he didn't do anything about the wrongs towards her by creditors. So she kept pestering him over and over and over again. Christ actually calls this judge a wicked judge because a good judge would deal with the issue whether it's an important person or not. His reason for not helping her was she wasn't important. He calls him a wicked judge. And he says, this wicked judge finally helps her just so she'll leave him alone. And then he said, how much more likely, and I'm paraphrasing, is God to assist you, who's not a wicked judge, if you keep asking? Christ literally tells us to keep praying even when he says no. So keep praying. Don't give up. Separate your emotions from the truth and keep bringing that truth to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your people and the chance to pray now. I do pray for wisdom for those here listening in person and online, that you would grant us wisdom beyond our years, wisdom beyond our experience, wisdom beyond the knowledge that we've gained from your word that we truly would have wisdom directly from you just given to us. That we can see clearly who you are, who we are, who others are, and know better how to serve you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here tonight, and uh, we will continue next Wednesday.